Hello and welcome everyone to worship this morning. Good to see you. Before we go into our worship service, I would like to mention a few things. And the first thing is not on the back of your bulletin. Um, As most of us know of the tornado that came through, I believe it was Friday night, um, there is extensive damage. Uh, Many lives have been lost. Families have been affected. Um, And there are many families in our denomination that are, are living in those towns as well. And so I got an email from uh, the stated clerk of our presbytery, which is kind of the head communications guy for all of our churches in the area. And they have been asked if there are people from our churches that would like to help with various things this coming week and into the future as far as disaster relief goes. So if you have a desire to, and this is from the email, a desire to build sheds to help with cleanup of debris and other light construction. If you have a desire to do that, they're looking for teams of people to go and to help with those things. So email me or Don if you have an interest in that, and we'll begin assembling and organizing uh, those of you who would like to go and help in that regard. Secondly, The youth are meeting tonight across the street in the Family Life building, and I have just a few more quickly. Life Night has started, and it is going to be again this week at 6 p.m. The children gather in their classrooms right at the start for dinner and then their lessons. The adults uh, gather over here for dinner and lesson in the choir room, and the youth meet in the youth room for dinner and their lessons. So we hope that you can come out and enjoy it. Last week we had great weather. We were able to sit outside. Beautiful picture of seeing our church gather together in that way. So we invite you to that. And lastly, you'll see this announcement, maybe. It's in stacks around the sanctuary. Um, it has information about our spring conference coming up in April. Please get one of these, read it over and put it in your calendar to plan to be there for the different parts of what is happening on April 14th and 15th and 16th. That is all I have to highlight this morning. Uh, God calls us, he brings us into worship to worship his son Jesus. So as the music plays, would you take a few moments to ask God to help you worship him this morning um, with faith and confidence. Let's do that now.
Good morning. I invite you to stand for our call to worship. As Matt has welcomed us, let us now hear from he who calls us to worship from Psalm 84, verses 1 through 4. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Let us sing together. Remain standing. Hymn number 97. We praise you, O God, our Redeemer, Creator. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity in which we can gather. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy to do this. And as we come together corporately to sing praises, to pray to you, to hear from your word, we pray that you would, through your spirit, be with us. Stir our hearts. Give us the desire, the will to hear your word and for it to penetrate our hearts. We pray that your word would spread your glory would be praised, not only within the confines of this church and these walls, throughout our community, our state, and our nation. As we see in your creation the beauty of spring, the wonderful weather we enjoy today, the grass is green and the flowers are budding. We are in awe of your creation. We're also in awe of your might. And we pray, as already been mentioned, we pray especially for those that today are looking for hope and are suffering. We pray for those that are suffering for whatever it may be, but more specifically across our state today. We pray for those that have been affected directly. We pray for those that are responding. We pray most of all, O oh God, this morning that your people, through your spirit, would respond with love and that in the midst of tragedy that you would be glorified. 
For we don't know the answers, but we do know that you are a supreme authority, the King of kings. And we pray now to you as our King, as you've taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It's at this time, weekly, we confess our faith together. We're confessing in this room. We're confessing with Christians across the world of now, past, and future, if Lord willing. I ask you this morning, as we're using the Apostles' Creed, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd like to lead us in a brief congregational prayer. Uh, Let's go before God again in prayer and ask him to lead us. Would you pray with me? Dear, most awesome and powerful God, we are here gathered together as your church, and we sit in worship and in awe of you. Father, Son, and Spirit, you have made yourself known to this world as the almighty and all-loving God. You are loving. You redeem sinful and lost people because you love us. And Lord Jesus, you have defeated death. And we say in our spirit and by faith, hallelujah. And yet we must wait for your return for death to be no more. It seems every day we're reminded of our fleeting life, of our vulnerability, of unexpected and unforeseen suffering. And so we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on us, that you would forgive us of our sin and unbelief, and that you would help us to trust you. God, as we have mentioned already multiple times, we are praying that you would help the people of Rolling Fork, of Winona, of Amory, of all of the towns and places that have been uh, devastated by the tornado that went through our state. God, would you, again, make resources easily available to those providing care and help? And would you provide more than enough people and resources to do these things? God, we are also praying for the Butterfields after the sudden and tragic death of Michael on Monday. Would you please pour out comfort on Barbara, on his mother, Mary, on their children and family as they grieve? Would you give them people to walk closely with them as they put their life back together um, day by day? 
Would you guide that congregation in making and bless their communion and worship this morning? And God of hope, God of strength, God of mercy, we continue to pray that you would show Carol new mercies today and this week, and that you would guide her steps, and also for Robert's family as well. Lord, we thank you for blessing our fellowship this past Wednesday night, and we pray you would continue to bless that time this coming Wednesday night. Lord, would you give us your spirit to understand your word this morning? Would you reveal your glory to us in the gospel? And would you give us new hearts to worship and to walk according to your word? We love you, and we thank you for this time of prayer, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Please pray with me. God, you know everything that we need, and you promise to provide us those things. So as we give, we know that you will use our tithes and offerings for your kingdom work. And that as we give, we can trust you that you will provide for us to continue providing for our families, providing for ourselves, and to be able to give to your kingdom if it be your will. So Lord, we, would you take our tithes and offerings and use them for your glory and for the good of this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue singing with, with hymn 653, which is Jesus is all the world to me. Let's sing hymn number 653. You may be seated. (laughs) 
I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7 in a Bible. Mark chapter, chapter 7 verse 1 is where we'll be starting. As we have been going through Mark uh, over the last several months, we continue. And we'll be there this morning. Um, there's a popular motivational question going around these days, which is, the question is, what is your why? What's your why? And people will say you need a why in your life, a reason to get out of bed, a reason to live. And sports players in interviews all the time will mention their family or their new child, and they'll say, this is my why. This is the reason I do all these things and try so hard. And this morning we ask similar questions. Why do we do what we do? Why do we worship? Why do we come to church? Why do we read God's word? Why do we obey God? You might be here this morning and you could not care less about God. You could not care less about his commands And you simply view them as a list of things that restrict your life or that cause life to be boring or joyless. And when you come to church, you might look around and only see hypocrites. And you're wondering, why are we all here doing these things? Jesus, in this passage, shows us that he understands all of this. And whether we're followers of Jesus or not, the way we react to God's laws and react to God's word and his commandments, the way we react reveals our hearts and how we understand God himself. And so we need help with this. We all need help. And we need to see that the root of God's law is actually in God's love. And the intent of the law is grace. So read with me in verse 1, Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for a moment. God, would you open your word to us and reveal to us your glory and the good news of Jesus. Would you help us to receive your word in a fresh way this morning and be encouraged and be challenged and to be led into faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this passage, I want to go through two points, and and then we'll enjoy the Lord's table together. And the two points that we have this morning is, one, the law that produces death, and number two, the law that produces life. The law that produces death and the law that produces life. Looking at this passage, I want us to see this main point, which is, the, which is this. That Jesus produces the inner motivation of our heart that the law requires but cannot produce. That's a long, sort of complicated sentence. It's Jesus produces the inner motivation of our heart the law requires but cannot produce. And so as we read this passage, you might be calling to mind the, the many different traditions and practices that uh, we hold to in this church and other churches out of a severe, uh, sincere devotion to God. And many are cultural, some are practical, some have been handed down to us over the years And the problem that Jesus points out in our passage isn't that God's laws or the outward traditions and practices are wrong in themselves. It's whether they are followed from a heart that's been changed by God's love. It's about the motivation of our heart, the why we obey God. I'm reading a book called Lila from Marilyn Robinson. Shout out to Elizabeth for bringing Marilyn Robinson into my life. Um, we, it, this book helped us name our daughter, Lila, and I said I would finish this book before Lila was born, and it's been two years almost, and I'm, but I'm almost to the end. I was reading it last night, and this portion of the book stuck out to me as it relates to our passage in my mind. So I'd like to read a conversation between Lila, the main character, who is kind of Uh, a vagabond. She lives all over the place, is always traveling, and she is in the car with a stranger who offered to give her a ride. And they're driving at night in the dark, and this is their conversation. The driver, a stranger, I'm sorry, let me start here. Lila asks the stranger, have you seen this movie? 
And she says, driving along in the dark reminds me of this movie. And the driver says, I can't go to the movies. It's against my religion. Oh. And she says, I shouldn't have called that man a thief. I shouldn't have said dang. And she's referring to an earlier part of their conversation. And Lila says, what's wrong with saying dang? And this driver says, well, it's practically swearing. Anyone knows what you really mean by it. And then Lila says, I didn't even know there was such a thing as practically swearing. And then the driver says, in my church there is. It's a Nazarene church, and we're pretty strict. And then she goes on to say, there's no drinking, there's no smoking, no dancing, no makeup, no jewelry. They're not too pleased with women driving cars. No stealing or killing either, but that's not what they talk about most of the time. I don't mind it. I grew up in it. You may have had a conversation. You may have family members um, who live a life very similar to this. And again, it's, this passage is not saying these things are wrong in themselves, but it comes out of, it must come out of a motivation for God and to be a source, uh, to be coming out of a love for God. The Pharisees and scribes created a system to perfectly obey God's law. But in doing so, they severed or they broke the relationship between God and His law. God's law, as we'll see shortly, is a gracious gift to sinners. It's a gracious gift from a gracious God who desires our hearts to be changed for His glory and for our good. He desires a change of our heart and the motivations of our heart. The law is death in itself, and outward obedience is meaningless if there has been no change to our hearts. Mark, in writing to the Jews, he's also writing to Gentile believers, which is you're, you're not Jewish, and that's why we, that's, they're called Gentiles. He's writing to a mixed group, and he explains the oral traditions of the Pharisees. And these oral traditions, they really came about after the exile. So after the exile and before Jesus comes is about a couple hundred years, maybe a little bit longer than that. But during this time, the oral tradition of the Pharisees and elders came about. And at this point, this oral tradition has become almost as, and in some cases, as authoritative as God's word. Look again at verse 5 with me, if you still have your Bibles open. We read this, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 29, and he's reminding them that God never desired outward signs of religious obedience to God without a connection to the heart. The Pharisees aren't just focused on outward obedience. They're actually doing more. 
I'd like to read again in verse 9. It says, He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. I wanted to read all that again because it's, one, it's confusing. Many of us don't know what Corban is. And two, Jesus is highlighting just one thing of many that the elders and Pharisees do um, that God is calling out, that Jesus is calling out. Let me explain Corbin really quickly. Um, I learned about this myself. And uh, the commentator James Edwards says that this, the Pharisees' oral tradition taught that a person would dedicate goods to God and withdraw them from ordinary use, although retaining control over them himself. I'll put it another way from someone else who said that a man goes through the formality of vowing something to God, not that he may give it to God, but in order to prevent some other person from having it. So the children of parents are being taught by the Pharisees and by the elders this oral tradition of Corbin, which lets them keep all of their property, all of the things that they want to keep, from their parents. The support that the parents would normally and traditionally have gotten from this property is now taken away from them. And this probably does not sound honoring to your mother and your father. The fifth commandment was being completely rejected in favor of this tradition that's been handed down. And it allowed children to dishonor their parents. But it did more than that also. It's not just sinful and wrong to break one of God's commandments. What's worse is when someone teaches people to sin and to break God's law. So the Pharisees are teaching this as godly. They're perverting God's word. And they're finding ways to get around God's law and teaching it as godly. And this is just one way, again, as Jesus says, among many, like the cleanliness laws, in which the Pharisees are twisting God's law for their own sinful purposes. And then Jesus says this in verse 14. And this is interesting, as I'm about to read it. Jesus doesn't say what he's about to say often. He is asserting his authority to speak what is true about God and his word. He says this, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he goes on to list in verses 20 through 23 these different sins and attitudes that defile us. The things that really make us uh, estranged from God or the things that really disconnect our relationship with God are not the things that we do on the outside, but it's the evil that comes out of our hearts. It's worth noting again that 
Mark in this way of taking off the layers of Jesus and revealing to us his identity slowly but surely, Jesus is here declaring the truth of Scripture. And the only person who can authoritatively declare God's word is God himself. Jesus is claiming in his declaration to be God. And so as we look at this list, we see that the first six things that Jesus mentions are evil acts, things that you do. And then the last six are evil attitudes. And yet these all come from the heart. And you might look at this list, or maybe you've heard a sermon on this passage, and it focuses on these sins, how to avoid them, uh, where they come from, things to do that we can help us not do these things. But if we look at this list and we start checking off all the things that we don't do, we fall into the same hole, the same trap as the Pharisees do. The point of this list is to know that it's our hearts that are the problem. Our hearts are sick with sin. It's not what we eat or touch that separates us from God. It's our sinful heart. And so we don't need more rules to help us follow God properly. We need a new heart, which leads us to the second point, the law that produces life. The law that produces life. Um, Jesus explains to us that the tradition of the Pharisees, that the way they understand the law is fundamentally flawed, that it's that they've totally missed the point, and they fail to represent God himself and his words. And as we've seen, the, the solution isn't to get rid of God's law, which I'm blanking on the term for that. The, the solution isn't to get rid of God's law or to make more laws. The solution for the Pharisees and for us is to get more of God himself, to get more of Jesus himself. The law is about inward motivation rather than outward rituals. And God's law has always required a transformed heart. If you go back to Exodus, even when God gives the Ten Commandments right before then, as we have heard many times, God says, I am the God who brought you out of slavery. And now follow my words. It's always God's grace and deliverance first, and then obedience. It's all grace. Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book that uh, our elder Stephen mentioned last week called The Whole Christ. And it talks about this sort of concept of legalism, this understanding and, and subject where we think about God's law and whether we should follow it strictly or whether... We need to follow it less strictly and things like that. But he says, Sinclair Ferguson says and argues that legalism may be the ultimate problem for Christians. And this is a a modern book. He's not, this wasn't written 200 years ago. He says it might be the ultimate problem for Christians. He says that legalism is a failure to see the generosity of God and his wise and loving plans for our lives. 
Now he explains this by taking us back to the story of the garden of Adam and Eve, where the serpent persuaded Adam and Eve that God was restrictive, that God was even mean, that his laws were actually not for their good. The serpent argued, why would God put you in the garden with all these great things and then not let you have this beautiful tree? The serpent tried to convince Eve that God's word wasn't clear. And then the serpent attacked the authority of God's word itself and said that you will not surely die. When God says you will surely die, the serpent says you will not surely die. And so the serpent's goal and what he did was attacking the character of God himself, making Adam and Eve not want to simply obey God, but to hate God. What kind of God the serpent would tempt them by, and by saying, what kind of God would deny you things that you would enjoy if he really loved you? And so Eve now has a completely different understanding of the commands that God has given her. She views them as negative commands, things that she just can't do. God has become this negative lawgiver and this judge who sits over her in judgment. And now God's law has been disconnected from the gracious heart of God. The serpent is successful Even Eve's and Adam's rejection of God's law is itself an example of their legalism. Legalism is, is both thinking that we can obey God rightly and perfectly, and it's also the thinking that we can just do away with God's law and live freely. It's both of those things. Legalism is, an under, is a misunderstanding of God of his heart, and especially of his law. Ferguson says we're legalists at heart, and I agree with him. So whether we flee from God's law or whether we believe we follow it rightly, we are misunderstanding God and his intent for the law. The law is an expression of God's grace. It's a lamp for our feet. If you read Psalm 119, you see verse after verse of someone who has experienced the grace of God and the grace of God's law. He says in verse 35, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. This delight comes to us in Christ. This delight in God's law comes to us only from Christ, who followed God's law perfectly for us. Jesus came to give us a new heart that would see God rightly, that would obey God out of love and joy, that would take joy in following him. And maybe some of the Pharisees and the scribes and some of you are hearing Jesus' teaching for the first time clearly. Maybe some of these Pharisees and scribes heard this and they finally saw that they were missing the heart of God in the first place. And now they're hearing these wonderful truths that they can go and have a feast. That they can feast on God's grace 
and even feast on all of these foods that they thought were unclean. We can imagine them just running to their favorite spot to eat and just ordering whatever they wanted in joy, knowing that Christ has declared all foods clean and knowing that they now know God himself. So we are also going to the table for a feast, a feast of God's grace in Christ. John Bunyan understood the weight of the law and the glory of Jesus. And I want to read this quote from him, which is also from Ferguson's book. He says this, Bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that, sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Our accuser hangs God's law on us, It's tempting us to believe that God is not good, that he is not loving, and that he doesn't want what's best for us. But when we come to this table, we proclaim that Jesus has defeated our accuser. We proclaim the God of grace who gives us his words and his law and leads us in life through them. And so the God of grace gives you his words, his law of life to you. Walk in them. By faith in Christ alone, you'll find rest for your souls. You'll find forgiveness for your sin. You'll you'll be given a new heart to follow Jesus into new life. The law could never do these things. Only in Christ can the law show us life in him. Would you please pray with me? Lord, this is a a complicated topic, and we all approach this topic from different traditions and histories and stories. But God, as we approach your word, as we approach even your command to enjoy this table, this bread and this juice, would you show us that it is coming from grace that's coming from your heart to see us changed, to see us freed from our sin, from the guilt of our sin, from the guilt of the law. God, cause us to see your commands as joyful. Cause us to walk in your word by faith and enjoy in you. God, help us to see these things this morning and encourage our hearts as we come to this table Uh, to enjoy your presence, to enjoy what you have given us in your body and your blood. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare the table, I invite you to stand for hymn number 264. We'll sing the first three verses of Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. Let's sing hymn 264.
You may be seated. Listen to the words of institution from Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. At this table, as Ferguson will point out, we get a firmer grasp of Jesus' grace through the seeing, through the tasting, through the touching of this bread and this juice that Jesus commands that we take. And in this church, many of us will dress up a little nicer, we'll do our hair a little bit better for this Sunday, for the Sunday that we come and enjoy the Lord's table. And it's special, it's a good thing when our motivation is pure. And what's wonderful and ironic about the Lord's table is that it's only for people who know that on the inside are defiled by sin. The table is for people who know that their hearts are sick with sin and that they need a loving Savior. This table is for people who know that their motivations are mixed for even the good things that we do because of sin. We come to this table on the merits of Jesus alone, by faith alone in him. And so as you come to this table, remember his death for your sin, his resurrection for your justification, his giving of his spirit for your sanctification. And by faith, this table will give you a thirst for more of God. It will strengthen your faith as you follow him a desire to delight in his word. So if you're a member of this church or another and in good standing, we invite you to enjoy this table. If you don't understand what it is that we're doing during this time, we would ask you that you would not participate. God asks us to take this table seriously. And he says that though there is judgment for those who take this bread and cup in an unworthy manner, but you can take this time to ask God to give you understanding, to give you faith. And you can write questions down for me or some elders to walk with you through. That would be beneficial to you. If you trust in Christ, I invite you again to take and eat and drink the grace of God in Christ. Would you please pray with me? God, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, in the presence of Jesus spiritually, that you would encourage our faith as we participate and as we enjoy this bread and this juice as you have commanded us to do. God, you are so good that you invite us to a feast, and we thank you for this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. 
as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The elders will distribute the bread now, and once everyone's been served, we'll eat together as one body. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat together. Jesus, in the same manner, took the cup and having given thanks as we've done in his name, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins, drink from it, all of you. 
Once again, the elders will pass out the juice, and once everyone's been served, we'll partake together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's drink together.
Uh, please join me in prayer. God, as we enjoy this small taste, would you fill us with your love and your grace as we go out from this place? As we eat lunch together or apart, Lord, would you remind us of your love for us, that you are leading us, that you are with us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand, we'll sing the last verse of hymn 264 to finish. Receive God's blessing from 2 Corinthians and respond in, in faith with your amen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.